nutrition and wellness has become such a huge like aspirational part of popular culture with within social media and stuff like that we're bombarded with it so i don't think it's any big mystery now but we've got a different set of problems now rather than like um not knowing this and not having that information we've got too much information most of it is bs and it's actually kind of cutting through all of that so we've got a different set of issues now Welcome to Live Well, Be Well podcast with your host, Sarah Ann Macklin, and brought to you by the not-for-profit mental health organization, The Be Well Collective. This podcast aims to bring you nutritional insight and mental health awareness through people's own personal journeys and health professionals' evidence-based advice to guide you on your own journey. This year has hit us all very hard but its impact has not been felt equally. With the pandemic highlighting pre-existing social, economic, and ethnic and race inequalities. Diet is the currently the biggest factor for disease in England, and it accounts for 10.8% of the total burden of disease. There is also emerging association between the risk of severe outcomes of COVID-19 and nutrition-related chronic diseases. I do feel this year has led to an increased awareness of health, highlighting the role of nutrition in supporting the immune system, the importance of food for our mental health, and it has made many of us think and become more aware of where our food is coming from. But only last week, the government announced they were stopping free school meals for vulnerable children over October half term. And this is a really important topic that I wanted to highlight today in today's podcast. So I speak to AKA the medical chef, Dale Pinnock. He is an author, nutritionist, and TV presenter whose love of nutrition began at childhood. He has a very successful TV show called Eat Safe Shop, where he works with all different families on reducing food budgets, but increasing nutrition. Very, very topical and very important. He's written a staggering 19 books and in this episode, we touch upon the social and economic inequalities surrounding food, as well as tearing apart some topical health fads. Hi Dale, welcome to Live Well, Be Well. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Absolutely. I'm kind of well. I'm sat, I'm sat here looking out my office window, and it's really, really grey, and it's uh, howling down with rain. But other than that, I'm all right. Really? Oh gosh. I bring my own sunshine, Sarah. In London, it's sunny oh, and really? clear oh, blue skies. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was us on Friday, but today's actually quite nice. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's a bit grim here. We've had a nice weekend, so you know. Good. Can't have it all. Good. I'm glad. Well. For all of my listeners, I'm sure that many of them have heard you speak on our platform, Be One mm. Collective. You did a fantastic video on our Live Well series. But I'd love to know, I've never actually truly asked you this, because you've been into nutrition for 26 years. 26 years. I've been in it a little while, yeah. You've been in it for a while. Well, you've been in it from the very beginning. And you know, your book was, I actually spoke on your podcast last week and mm. said that your book was one of the first books to inspire me. And oh, um, you. can you tell everyone who's listening really about your journey into nutrition, how it started? Because obviously it wasn't a buzzword back then as it is today oh absolutely not no i mean we're talking we're talking the 90s here Mm. we're talking early 90s as well we're talking around 92 Mm -hmm. and uh, trust me in the middle of the rave era people weren't (laughs) talking about nutrition you know they were talking they were talking about tunes and talking about like where they were were at the weekend and things like that Mm -hmm. um i got into it probably in a similar way that many other people have found nutrition and wellness mm-hmm. my own health challenges so for me it was it was acne oh, wow. i had quite bad acne from the age of about it was it was it was about 10 or 11 it was that that summer of leaving primary school to go up to secondary school mm-hmm. that time in your life when you just start to 
become self-aware and particularly aware of yourself in comparison to your peers. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden I started to break out and I looked like I'd been shot in the face with a blunderbuss. It really (laughs) wasn't good at all. I I did get it quite bad. And I went to lots of different practitioners, dermatologists, tried every manner of lotion and potion, Mm. and nothing really made that much of a difference. Nothing really helped a great deal. I mean, there was minor changes Mm. here and there. But... I got to the age of about 15 and I was sat around at my friend's house one night and was feeling sorry for myself. So yeah, this was 1992. Feeling sorry for myself and moping about the the fact that my skin was so bad. And his mum came in and she gave me this book. It was a book called Fit for Life by Harvey Diamond, which was a real cult 80s diet classic okay. about kind of food combining and that kind of stuff. When you read it now, it's just like, you know, it sounds a bit hokey. But back then mm-hmm. it was like a, a classic thing. It was one of the first real large-scale nutrition-oriented diet plans in in that kind of time because in the 80s it was all like aerobics and music wasn't it <laughs> Mr. <Major laughs> Excuse Peter. Me. Yeah. yes uh, exactly and Diana Moran and all those mm-hmm. kind of people so she she gave me this book and she said look unless you change what's going on on the inside nothing's going to change on the outside so obviously it's like a 15 year old boy I was like yeah whatever but mm-hmm. to be fair I was that desperate that if someone would have told me to run out in the garden at midnight wrapped in tinfoil and that, that would sort out my problems, I would have done it. Yeah. I mean, I was really that desperate at that point. Yeah, I can imagine it would have affected you hugely. Yeah, I mean, cause, because I had it on my face as well. I mean, you know, yeah. if you've got like a, a spotty bum, no one cares. No one's going to see it. But like yeah. if it's on your face when it's kind of out there mm. in the world, it's... And kids can be awful as yeah, well. Yeah, I mean, they like, can. At school at that time, it was, it, it, you know, it was it was no picnic. All I, you know, we had this kind of conversation as well. We alluded to the fact that I remember days before the internet, yet alone, mm. let alone before yes. social media. I am so glad social media didn't exist when I was at school because yeah. that would have been savage. Yeah. Anyway, we digress. So, yeah, <laughs> I, I kind of, I, I read this book cover to cover in a weekend and that was the first time I really um, had that aha moment, you know, that light bulb moment that we can actively engage in our own healthcare. This isn't a passive process. You're not yeah. just like a victim of circumstance. I mean, of course, you've been dealt a genetic hand. You're you're you you're growing up in the environment you're growing up in, mm-hmm. but it doesn't mean that it's this kind of static process that you can't play any role in. Yes. How sad and that that's not taught at school, isn't it? I know. I mean, to be fair, I, I do believe that there's more of a realization around that now mm. than than there was in the '90s. That's a sure fact because yes. because of the you know the quick access to information, because of the fact nutrition and wellness has become such a huge like aspirational part of popular culture with mm. within social media and stuff like that. We're bombarded with it, so I don't think it's any big mystery now. But mm-hmm. we've got a different set of problems now, rather than yeah. like. Um, not knowing this and not having that information we've got too much information most of it is bs and it's actually kind of cutting through all of that so we've got a different set of issues now Mm -hmm. so yeah that's 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 what got me into it and i started i mean i changed my diet drastically i mean at that point it was all like kind of uh burgers pizzas and weird concoctions made in a microwave yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly and i kind of at that point moved over to a predominantly plant-based diet I mean, I'm certainly not now. I eat anything that's still for long enough. But mm-hmm. um, at that time, I was vegan for like 20 years and made these huge changes to my lifestyle. And I started to see, yeah, of course, my skin cleared up. But so many other things changed. So many other aspects of my life changed because I was starting to, to function better and think better and feel better in every element of life. I just became hooked. And I read over like a, a, a thousand books in, in probably less than two years. Used myself as a guinea pig. Put myself wow. in the hospital twice. Did oh my sort, goodness, yeah, why? That's, uh, that's, uh, that's just, uh, I'll tell you that story at the end because <laughs> that is a bit get? of a rabbit hole. But, okay. um, so, but I, I became obsessed, I think, is the, is the real take home there. And mm. at, that, at that point, I didn't have any kind of qualification to my name because I just buggered about when I was at school and spent you know as a, uh, the, the only clues I'll give you growing up in the rave scene you know there was like there was there was other interests yeah um so <laughs> I I just mucked about and I but I got to that point where I, actually for the for the first time ever I found something that I really wanted to do with my life yeah 
and that was it. So I went off and did my Axis course, then did my first degree in human nutrition, then did a second degree in herbal medicine. Not that I wanted to be a herbalist, I just wanted to know more about plant biochemistry. And mm-hmm. of course, there's things in food that aren't nutrients, but still impact our physiology. And that was the best way to learn about those. Yeah. And then I did um, the Masters in Nutritional Medicine at the University of Surrey. Amazing. And here I am. Wow. And here you are 18 books later. Mm, mm. And can you talk us through those range of books? Which one's kind of like stands out for you the most? Oh, oh my God. It's like ask, asking it to choose your favourite child. <laughs> um, <coughs> well, each of them mean different things for different reasons, to be honest. I mean, probably the, I mean, I can't not mention the first medicinal chef book well that's why that was my first ever book well, obviously it was well, the first yeah, one you wrote but that's no no the no the first that... the first one i wrote was medicinal cookery oh that was it but, yeah yeah, yeah which was the little chef. the little paperback one yeah the first medicinal chef one was actually the third book that i wrote but it was the first big one mm. that's the one i that's, bought yeah the first that's, one. The, that's the that's the book that kind of changed everything i mean it's it's in 19 languages in 22 countries um sold insane amounts of copies globally and it, you know it became a life changer i'm not gonna you know not gonna lie it, it did it did really change things drastically for me it opened up like huge doors career-wise as well mm-hmm. and it was the first time that i was actually given the opportunity to create the book that i always wanted to because that's what i wanted to do with medicinal cookery but the mm. the obviously i was i was an unknown then i hadn't really had any kind of uh, media attention or anything like that and the publishers just didn't want to take the leap to invest in that way then once i'd i'd got a little bit of tv under my belt and a, a fair bit of printed press and just met the right literary agent got to sit down with quadrille and they you know they kind of shared the vision and we and we just got everything right with that book and it, mm. it yeah it did it did good things but the one honestly that i'm <clears throat> most proud of is called the power of three mm-hmm. okay and that's not because it's you know, like anything profound in the recipes. It's more to do with the science side of things. Because with the, the recipes are just like the delivery system for the information for me. They always have been. I'm not, you know, I'm not like a, an obsessive chef or anything. I love, love to eat. But creating food is the most obvious delivery system for the information. For me, it's the science. Yeah. For me, it's the nerdy detail. For me, it's like really, really unpacking everything and trying to deliver key concepts that people can use and... and dismantle all of these very very complex um ideas and you know complex biochemistry and things like that and break it down into simple bite-sized accessible pieces of information that people regardless of background can understand and then put into action and I think the power of three does that brilliantly and it really kind of sums up my whole philosophy surrounding some of the real key contributory factors to you know this this sort of tsunami of modern lifestyle related disease that that certainly pre-covid at least was mm-hmm. the you know the the NHS's big burden well it still is <laughs> it still is it yeah absolutely. exactly absolutely exactly. you know what it like, still is and covid's highlighted that so much more yeah. which is what's so worrying you know if you look at the social economic determinants of health mm-hmm. it's playing a massive role and we know that in the most deprived areas of the uk people yeah. are twice as likely to die from covid19 as those in the leaf deprived areas and that's just highlighting huge social and economic inequalities which sure. i think is really worrying and you know, when I was reading about this as well, diet is currently the biggest risk factor for disease in England. And just that yeah, one sentence is, it, even as a nutritionist and, and, and for you as well as a nutritionist, mm. still we know the importance of diet, but still reading that statistic is quite worrying. And It is, but I mean, you only need to look at the environment. I mean, I, I think... Well, the obesogenic environment we live yes, in. Yes, yeah, exactly. It's really worrying. Exactly. It's yeah, really it, worrying. It, <laughs> It's very easy. I mean, like, you, th- there's so many levels to this. It's it's unbelievable. I mean, just just the sensory experience of a lot of junk food. A lot of the people that develop these junk foods understands the, the the kind of biochemical events that take place when you get that perfect combination of salt, fat, sugar, mm-hmm. all together. Mm-hmm. When like all the different reward centers in the brain and the dopamine hit and the and the whole biochemical sequence of events there's people paid to make sure that certain foods are delivering the perfect combination of that so you get almost like that that drug-like hit from it the cost 
of these kinds of things they're so so they've become so accessible mm-hmm. you know they the have. market yeah the marketing behind some of these things you know it's it's like it's like some of the worst attributes of the human condition are used against us sometimes it's really bizarre it's yeah it's it's a funny environment and then also with this 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 kind of belief that's been dripped into the into us that healthy food is somehow really super expensive mm-hmm. and is only for a certain socio-economic group it's like if you if you kind of ha- you have to have a certain amount of disposable income to be able to afford fruit and veg and that's ridiculous yeah yeah i mean it it's is so untrue it's- it is really untrue. I think a great thing that you do, and I'm sure many people have watched you on your Eat Shop Save mm. um, and also your books, but you do teach people to eat really well on a budget. And I think that's something that, you know, COVID has really arisen to because you've seen yeah. these huge you know, determinants of health that food is one of them and food prices is a major determinant of food choices. Um, and so people feel that they can't eat healthy because it's, very very expensive yeah but for you what would be your kind of top tips to for people to eat well on a budget wow uh the first thing is really get to know what's available in your area and the reason that i will start with that is i mean i'll tell you a little story something i did maybe god we're probably looking at almost 10 years ago now i did a um excuse me did a, um, a a little program with um, ITV for ITV News. It was a special feature for ITV News, and we worked with these two girls that were living in the YMCA in Croydon. Okay, mm-hmm. now these two girls, their weekly combined, you know, both of these t- girls together, their combined weekly budget for food was fifteen pounds, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And they were heavily reliant on the kind of frozen food chain supermarkets and those kind of places. Yeah. And they, you know, they were buying those kind of ready meals. They were running out of money and running out of food and also were acutely aware that they weren't kind of ticking the right nutritional boxes. So they, they, you know, they reached out to this organization and that's how this whole thing happened. And just sat down with them and I was just like, okay, where do you do your shopping? They said, yeah, this, this particular supermarket, because obviously it's always often there's a lot of marketing around it being super affordable and all the Mm -hmm. rest of it. Um... I was like, so how much How much do you ever get from the local market? And they said, what local market? <laughs> and if you know Croydon, it's smack bang in the middle. Mm. It's like this this market, I think it's a daily market as well, smack bang in the middle of Croydon. So we took them shopping around there. Literally, we filled five carrier bags with fresh fruit and vegetables mm-hmm. and didn't even spend a tenner. Mm. Right, so we we then went back to back to this YMCA, went into the kitchen there, and we cooked up these big vats of. I mean, one of the things that we made was the spinach and sweet potato curry. Tastes absolutely divine. Mm-hmm. Full of good stuff. Works out sixty two pence a portion. Wow! So they were able to actually cook large vats of this stuff, then freeze it in individual portions. Mm-hmm. They were able to fill the freezer stockpile healthy food spend less and actually be getting higher quality nutrition mm-hmm. so just something as simple i mean just using that example something as simple as just being aware of all the different options that are in your area all the different outlets that are in your area there may be a hidden gem around the corner there, there could be a small holding there could be a farmer's market there could be a box subscription scheme there could be anything in your local area mm. that could save you 15 20 30 percent of your monthly expenditure on fresh fruits and vegetables so that's the first thing shop smart have a look what's in your area and you know what some of these more um budget orientated supermarkets i mean for the ready meals and stuff like that i just wouldn't even bother because they're hellish but you know what they do really well is the fruit and veg yeah yeah, I mean, you know, the likes of, you know, Aldi and those kind of places. I mean, that was one particular store we used a lot in Eat Shop Save because they were obviously um, a very budget-centric outlet. I've got no affiliation with them, you know. Mm-hmm. There's that one, There's that line again, Sarah. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> we, did, we did this the other day, didn't we? We did. Um, but, but, you know, it just goes, it just goes to show that, that they, they have got that very right with the actual fresh fruit and veg. I mean, the, the ready meals, yeah, but the, the fruit yeah. and the veg. Yeah. 
if you understand what's available in your local area and see how much money you can save, that's the first step. The second step is let the freezer be your friend. Batch cooking. So I talked about the fact that we made these large vats of the, uh, the spinach and sweet potato curry. Mm-hmm. Cook larger batches of your favourites, like curries, chilies, stews, all of those kind of things that freeze really, really well. If you've got a little bit of spare time on a Sunday afternoon or something, cook your favourites, but instead of doing you know, the amount that you'd normally do for, for you or your family, double it. Yeah, treble it and you can save money buying in bulk generally mm-hmm. but also you can start to get ahead when you start to fill your freezer up you can buy the little single portion containers from the supermarket very easily providing you're not, not in Wales and you can't buy anything yeah. um, <laughs> but start to stockpile the freezer and then you're going to have you're, you're going to end up shopping less because you've got more on hand mm-hmm. you've got food you know exactly how it's been made mm. And you'll start to save money. So those those are my those are my two top tips. Shop smarter. Look at what's in your local area and get to know what's in your local area and see what the best choices are. Mm-hmm. And let the freezer be your friend. Yeah. Not start to batch cook and stockpile your own supply of healthy food. And I guess a huge thing in there is is being organised and, and preparation because I think so many people find the beginning of the change really overwhelming. Yeah. Because they're not used to that. But I think as soon as you set aside time within your day to say, right, this is what I'm going to do for this week and make a plan, it allows it to become less overwhelming. Yeah, totally. And well, I think that's I, I, a huge thing. But also, I mean, it's it's about that making that transition easier as well. I think this is a really important thing to, um, to say. If you try and jump into a complete lifestyle overhaul immediately, yeah. for most of us, for probably like 98, 99% of people, unless, you know, unless you're proper hardcore... Mm. You're going to slip up, because, you know, completely trying to overhaul your lifestyle in one go is a lot to take on. So I'll say change one thing. Find one thing that you can change easily. And that could be as simple as like, right, you know what? I'm going to commit to one meal a day being a home-cooked meal. I'm going to stop snacking on chocolate and instead snack on fresh fruit. Mm -hmm. I'm going to make sure that with one meal a day, I always have a good dense side salad with it. Whatever. Mm -hmm. Whatever kind of change you know that you can make and that you will find easy to actually implement and you're, you're less likely to actually fall off the wagon with, and start implementing that change. Just start doing it. Start doing it. Start doing it. Every single day, I see 21 repetitions to, to make a, a habit change. Keep doing it until it becomes the norm. As soon as it becomes the norm, then move the goalposts. Change something, something else. Keep that change in place, but then change another thing. And then do the same again and again and again. It may seem like baby steps, but when you actually look back over six months, 12 months, you will start to see some significant lifestyle change. Yeah. I completely agree with that. It means when I did the Great British Veg Out, which I know that you were a part of, about getting people to increase their vegetables. Yeah. All we wanted to do was not look at anything else that's in their diet at that in that month, but just looking at increasing vegetables in mm-hmm. their week and their days. And once you start increasing the good things, you naturally start yeah, decreasing exactly. the bad things. That's just what I was going to say, completely. Exactly. And I think, I don't know, I think it was a really important topic to touch upon with with food insecurity because there are many people living on the breadline, worrying mm. about where their money is coming in every yeah. single month and having a huge household to feed. And I read a really worrying statistic that since lockdown measures came into force on March the 23rd, Mm. millions of households with children experienced food insecurity and that was a 250% increase pre the pandemic levels on May 2020. I mean, that's mad, isn't it? 250% increase. So I think uh, talking about this and talking about eating well on a budget and how you can eat well on a budget Mm. is really important because as you know, this week, the government announced that they're stopping all the free school meals um, during half term in England which is now what we're in and I think it's one deeply saddening that we're going to have children in the UK being hungry and living in food insecurity and Mm. I just think that's at the moment it's something that we should it shouldn't be happening in 2020 but I don't know if you've heard on Friday McDonald's um, announced that they're offering a million free school meals to UK families over this time yeah and so as much as it's, it's a really hard one for, to approach because as much as it's fantastic, I know, yeah. as much as it's fantastic that, yes, okay, children will have some meals, but this is mm. going to be from McDonald's. Mm. Now, I'm all around 
people having treats and allowing to feel that they not to demonize but if it's a daily groups, thing you know if, it, and if there's exactly. going to be that reliance on it as a daily sort of source of food then it's a slightly different scenario this, this is there a thing again, there's I a mean, food insecurity opinion about what does this do when it comes to nutrition and food for yeah. children as well because this is this is children this is what they're growing up in. and i don't know if you've looked at the national childhood measurement program where they um measure the children around yeah site uh, year six it is not size six year six um <laughs> and they found that the most deprived groups of children were shorter than those in the least deprived groups mm. of children for the white british children and asian children and this is all focused around obesogenic environments you know a huge um increase in these deprived areas of more fast food outlets being yeah. put in and things like mcdonald's so like talking about this in like an open point of view and like the consequences because you've written books within the life stages mm. and the importance of nutrition and talking about this maybe not from the ethical point of view but from the nutritionist point of view how worrying is it that now mcdonald's are stepping in and saying you can have free meals from us you know what what is the consequences of that nutrition well i mean i i never thought i'd see the day to be honest yeah um you know what between between true starvation and true like um you know energy malnutrition and having mackey d's for a couple of weeks it's 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 a tricky one to call exactly like we said at the beginning it, mm. it is like it is like a moral dilemma it's like it of is. course it's not it's not like the perfect it's not the perfect food but i guess if someone is in that situation where they run the risk of not even meeting the most basic caloric intake mm. in a day then it's better than nothing, right? Yeah. And obviously, yeah. yeah, certainly from a from a macronutrient point of view, from like you know the proteins, fats, carbohydrates, that's going to be well and truly covered by by that kind of food. What what the the big issue is going to be, and to be honest, like one or two weeks of a half term isn't going to be having any kind of significant effect. But I think really within that group, the wider the broader picture of what's going to come from this like you know if there's still that food inequality mm-hmm. because of the god-awful handling of the of the pandemic and all that kind of stuff yeah the long-term issue is going to be micronutrient um intakes so things like vitamin d for example so we know like for for skeletal development it's going to be that you know that's going to have a, a hellish impact mm. um, the primary source of vitamin d for humans is the conversion of cholesterol into vitamin d precursors upon exposure to ultraviolet radiation there ain't much of that around at the minute no um yeah. well, not where you are there's a little bit of us there. <laughs> <laughs> there you go rubbing it in again um also long chain omega-3 fatty acids dha particularly for neurological development in um, in kids up to well, even even people up to the age of about twenty one, twenty two, there's still yeah. that you know there's still a very very high degree of neuroplasticity, and with without sufficient DHA intake, that's going to you know Im- impair learning and and neurological development. Mm-hmm. And then you know then we've got things like simple sugars and all of those kinds of things, which you know. <laughs> It's it's such a huge can of worms. Honestly, I really don't know where to start with this with this this kind of I- issue because, mm. you know, I don't want to use that bloody terminology that everyone else has used. Unprecedented times. Do you know what I mean? Yes. It's just like part of the uh, the excuse sheet that comes out at every single mm. news conference. Um, but it's kind of true. It's like you know, th- th- those those segments of society were there before. Yeah. This happened, and now they're 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 their plight is being amplified so we're just we're just going to see more of it and how we how we actually tackle it i don't know i mean I, you know i look at some of the people that are doing some incredible work i mean obviously you know the the man in the moment is marcus rashford he's obviously yes, all over the, the press for man. for the campaigning that he's been doing yeah. but then you know there's a, a guy called dom that does dom's food mission he's you know he's been kind of ta- he's, he's been doing like food banks 2.0 mm. um you know and these and these these are a, a great the Felix Project, they're fantastic yes, oh, there's as well. so many. And, and these, these, you know, things like a food bank. I mean, I'll tell you about some of the ideas that I've had as well, because obviously the, the, the people that need to use these kind of services, these can be a real lifeline. These can be the difference between them, you know, literally having something to eat and nothing whatsoever. Yeah. So from that point of view, they're very good. But these people are clearly the most vulnerable. So they're the ones that have got 
the highest needs for very high quality nutrition to actually mm-hmm. make up for that deficit that's there. You know, and that's one of the things that always concerns me. And I kind of look at some of the stuff that's, that gets donated to food banks and it tends to be like, you know, value soups and white pasta and stuff like that. Mm. Better than starvation, absolutely. Yeah. But in terms of like, you know, this, this desperate nutritional need that this particular... Um, group of people actually need I kind of think okay is there something better that we could do one of the things that I think would be a great idea is if health food stores would start their own versions yeah. so when people are shopping in their local health food store they can put things like you know, brown rice and pulses and and good healthy ingredients into the basket so at least there's they're up in the nutritional density a little bit mm-hmm. the one thing that i always wanted to do and i actually looked into doing it i spoke to so many people about it but then you know the britain being what it is the the oppressive regime that is health and safety would have made this like a complete and utter non-starter but i wanted to start a campaign called make one more mm-hmm. So when families are like uh, are cooking a meal, for those that can, when they're cooking their cooking their evening meal, maybe make an extra portion that can be boxed up, that can be frozen, that can be collected, can be taken to a central distribution place. I mean, like from from a logistic point of view, it's doable. Mm. It's just the, the the bloody health and safety red tape that made it a bit of a nightmare. But I, I just don't. Yeah, especially in COVID, I can't imagine. I can't. Oh, so, God, I mean, you can't, well, you can't do anything in COVID. No, you can't. I can't mean, you, know, you can't buy a pair of pants in Wales. I mean, so, I mean, the, the whole world's gone mental with all of this. So, like, something like that, that would be like, that would be the most ridiculous idea ever. Yeah, no, it really, I mean, it sounds like a fantastic idea. Mm. I definitely think, I mean, if we weren't in COVID, I think that'd be really easy to implement, definitely. I mean, maybe it's still as easy to implement now. I'm not sure. Mm. I, hope, I don't know how much you looked into it, but it is about... I mean, I when I read last week about McDonald's now yeah. fortifying, not fortifying, basically serving children their dinners all this week, it just shocked me with terror, especially after we know the importance of childhood nutrition. Yeah, I mean, it is you, just really worrying. I really don't want to sound like a cynic mm. with this one. I can't help but think it's just a really convenient PR opportunity. I know. When I think, you know, McDonald's are now coming at Trumps, aren't they? Yeah, on top of saving, saving the children in the UK. Yeah, and, and yeah, it's it's a very, very, very difficult ethical judgment call to make, mm. um, and that's just the cynical side of my brain. It could be that it's not that at all, and mm. they're genuinely coming to the rescue. Yeah, past experience, and you know, un- understanding corporate mentality, I, uh, I'm I'm inclined to think it's probably not that, but you know, yeah. Well, I think something anyone that's really interested in this kind of topic, and I don't know if you've read it, but the Broken Food Plate 2020, which talks oh. about the state of the, na- the nation's food system. And it's from the Food Foundation, and they've done some amazing research all about it. And they kind, mm. you know, and, and I'm not going to, we're going to definitely send this on a high <laughs> after this sad low point. But I think it's yeah. a really interesting topic to talk about and allow people to be aware of and just how important childhood nutrition is um is because you know they predict that by 2085 if we don't change nearly one in five people will have heart disease and more more than one in five people will have type 2 diabetes if we don't change we're not far off that stat anyway we're not we're not exactly and this is them i think trying i've do you know what sarah in clinic i have seen four-year-old children with type 2 diabetes well that's why it's called type type 2 diabetes and not adult onset diabetes anymore because children as low as four are getting diabetes and i think it's just why it's so important that we do talk about nutrition and maybe not from you know the view that might most people might have thought this conversation could have gone but actually just from how important it is for development and day-to-day life because it is like putting the wrong fuel into a car Oh, it's, it's vital. I mean, it's certainly, it certainly in, the, in those in those formative years. I mean, mm. a lack of vitamin D, there's going to be skeletal malformation. I mean, obviously, in its in its worst, it's going to be things like rickets, mm-hmm. or you know, very a lot of weakness in the spine that's going to lead to you know spinal compression and like misshapen spine and poor posture. Um, with the neurological development, a lack of B vitamins, a lack of the long chain omega three fatty acids that we've spoken about, any of those kind of things will have a severe impact on cognitive development. Um, everything from you know behavioural issues to learning, is a huge yeah, learning one. capacity, yeah. mood. I mean, you know, you just think about how how low the the mood will be if mm-hmm. you're, you know, if 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 you're 
struggling to meet the most basic of nutritional needs. So there's so much of this. There's there's so many interlinking parts. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the, the, what I love about you, Dale, is that you actually work with so many families all over the country mm. on your TV program, Eat, Shop, yeah. Save, which is fantastic. And anyone who's not watched it, I highly recommend that you can go on and you can watch it on Catch Up. Go because, on to the ITV player. Exactly, because it's great. And, it, you know, it teaches you so many, so many times nutritionists have these conversations and dietitians about what is the best way to eat but actually you really show tips but you actually show them how yeah. to cook and i think that is one of the most important things we spoke but, about that on, on your podcast yeah about i mean losing because, the cooking aspect of it you and know the what knowledge. the most important part of the whole thing is though and the thing that really made each shop save the success that it was and why people resonated with it for so long mm. it's like yeah of course you know there, there is the cooking element there we are teaching them about the importance of um the you know the overall picture of a good diet and why mm-hmm. it's beneficial all of that all of those little nuggets are in there like but ultimately the thing that we did mm-hmm. is we started exactly where that family was at with every single family that we work with we didn't go there with any kind of preconception in mind yeah we would actually sit down and listen to what the unique circumstances of those individuals are and say look it doesn't matter where you're at I guarantee I know that sounds like a huge statement it doesn't matter where you're at it doesn't matter what challenges you have I guarantee there is a way to make some improvements Mm -hmm. and to actually take some steps towards eating better we didn't take them to a fancy studio yeah. You know, we didn't have like the central place that they all come back and they have a cooking <laughs> lesson or any of that kind of stuff, which you see in other shows. And that's cool and that's great and it makes brilliant TV. What we did, we, we, were, we were there kind of like the whole thing was shot on one camera. I mean, with the first two series, Luke Blessing, the amount of times he had to sit in the family's sink to get the shot and stuff <laughs> like that. But it was real. We just turned up at yeah. the house. We, we were cooking, cooking in their kitchen with their utensils. We went shopping at their local stores and say, look, this is, you know, it's all well and good if we kind of take you for an all expenses paid trip around Whole Foods and then took you to a, a, stu- a studio in Chelsea and cooked up something nice and then we you know we stick you back on the train train to Wigan and say right go on crack on with it that's, that's no use to anyone and they feel more overwhelmed than ever yeah yeah completely we actually just said look okay so this is this is what you've got available this is what your situation is this is how we can make it better and that's what people resonated with ultimately it made people realise that no matter what's going on with a little bit of thought with a little bit of kind of thinking around the issues slightly differently a few tweaks here and there they can make a huge difference to their family's health yeah and that's the thing isn't it it's not feeling overwhelmed with having to completely throw away all of your old habits and bring in a new lifestyle it's about adding that in bit by Mm. bit and i see that in clinic with people i think certain people i see do have a lot of choice in their food choices so they will come in and and they want a whole rehaul on their diet and i just you know that's not good for anybody it's about taking Mm -hmm. small manageable steps that you can then maintain for the rest of your life and making that into a healthy decision as opposed to rehaul it but then you have the other end where people are struggling to live and are on the bread line and just feel too far by making any change because they just don't know really where their next meal is coming from and so i think it's that really fine balance isn't it about as you said, working what people have and showing that it is accessible to people and that nutrition doesn't have to be elitist. And I, that's something that is quite upsetting, I think. And I'm sure you've seen it because you've been in there from the beginning, 26 years. I'm sure yeah. you've seen nutrition change and transform. And now it's it's gone from not being super cool to being now one of the most elitist things that you can work with. I know, in, I, guess, I know. It's really bizarre. Really I mean, sad. It's when I When I first got into it, and when I, you know, back in the days when I was really into it the only people that were kind of out there were patrick holford mm-hmm. um and the poo lady you know the name of my mention that kind of set nutrition back about 20 years for yeah. those tv shows but never mind yeah. um you know there wasn't many people really speaking about this um i think maybe michael murray was doing a few bits you might see andrew wheel here here and there mm-hmm. but you know it's mostly mostly patrick was like the the kind of spokesperson at the, at the time and i remember reading things like the optimum nutrition bible and and stuff like that and you know i was really getting into it and i was like this is gonna really this is gonna change lives this is really this is something that's really gonna get more and more popular it's gonna get mainstream mm-hmm. i knew it's gonna get mainstream but what i never saw coming was that 
I mean, obviously, the, the whole notion of social media was so far beyond our comprehension at that point because, I mean, no one had invent, invented the internet yet. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> let yeah. alone like bloody Instagram or anything like that. Yeah. But the one thing that I never saw coming was how nutrition and wellness would become so weirdly entwined with with popular culture, with fashion, with aspirational lifestyles, with this kind of, yeah, this this kind of almost yeah elitist kind of, lifestyle and you know with the onset of very visually med so led social lead media like um god oh, can't get me teeth in like instagram those kinds of things that mm. so what's the biggest myths that you've seen because i see them all oh, the time and we talk about this <laughs> how long you got sarah <laughs> okay come on give me your kind of top two that you think actually i just want to spell while i'm on here because i think people will be very interested to hear about this from jesus on a motorbike that's gonna take a long time um <laughs> you know what okay so what <sighs> You're going to love this one. Okay, good. This is this is one for both of us. Like, so obviously, one of the things that's that's huge at the minute is um, a plant based diet. Mm-hmm. Now, I was I was vegan for twenty years, mm-hmm. and you know, two degrees and a master's later, I can think around the subject a little bit. So I'm not saying I'm I'm saying this purely with a science in mind, not from any kind of judgment point. Mm-hmm. If someone's gone vegan for um, ethical animal rights issues i have no argument it's the most you know it's the most noble step you can take i absolutely get that and completely agree with that if you think that it's going to be nutritional utopia and the answer to everything then you're going to fall short there's a few things you need to understand about that and the biggest one is the long chain omega-3 fatty acid thing the one thing that drives me mental is people will say yeah eat chia seeds and flax seeds and walnuts they're a great source of omega-3 right hang on Hang on, let's wind this in a little bit. Yeah, they contain loads of omega-3, but they're not a good source of it, and that sounds like a bit of a contradiction. The reason being, omega-3 isn't one single substance. It's an entire family of fatty acids. There's ALA, EPA, DHA, DPA. Those are the omega-3 fatty acids. Now, out of those four, the two that can actually be used by the human body are EPA and DHA. Those are the ones that are fed into key metabolic pathways within our body. In plants, omega-3 exists in the form of ALA. This is what you find in flax seeds, in chia seeds, in walnuts, in these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that goes around social media at the minute is like, cut out the middleman. Fish get their omega-3 from algae. And it's like, yeah, in algae, it's ALA. But the, the reason why all of this falls down is because... ALA has to go through significant enzymatic conversion. So it has to go through elongase and desaturase enzymes. Basically, what these do is, you know, for any of the, the biochemistry geeks there, like so desaturase, they desaturate the carbons, they put more double bonds into the molecule and they stretch it out and elongate it. Mm-hmm. So elongase, desaturase, the clue's in the name. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, so the end products are these very, very long-chain EPA and DHA. Now, human beings are terrible at doing that conversion. You're looking at about a 4% conversion of ALA into EPA and about a 0.6% conversion of ALA into DHA. So you could have the diet of a canary. You could be eating bags and bags and bags and bags of seeds all day long and you would be nowhere near replete in omega-3 fatty acids because your body wouldn't be doing that conversion, wouldn't be converting it into the long-chain varieties that we actually put to use mm-hmm. but things like fish and grazing cattle well fish that swim in the upper layers of the water because these are the only ones that are feeding on phytoplankton anyway because phytoplankton only exists within the layers of water that actually get enough sunlight so fish that swim in the upper layers of water and grazing cattle they can do that conversion very very effectively you know mm-hmm. just but that, that's just their physiology they can take sources of ala and very effectively convert that into EPA and DHA. That's why when you eat oily fish and grass-fed meats, you get the preformed EPA and DHA there within that food. Mm-hmm. So with a vegan diet, unless I mean you can get some algae-derived EPA and DHA, but they tend to be DHA dominant, and the EPA is very very low. Um, this can influence neurological function. This can influence um, mood and depression. This can mm-hmm massively influence inflammatory load in the body so epa particularly is the precursor to something called a series three prostaglandin which is a communication compound that the body uses to massively push down chronic inflammation you've got two types of inflammatory response in the body you've got acute and you've got chronic acute 
cute is the one that saves your life. So if you you know if you drop a if you whack your thumb with a hammer and it's <laughs> that throbbing and that and that swelling, that's that's, acute, that, that's yeah. the acute inflammatory response that gets like the the immune cells to the area and makes sure that you know the tissue doesn't get necrotic and everything heals properly. That doesn't cause us any issues. What causes us major issues is the chronic inflammation so it's just gentle inflammatory changes in tissues over time which can be the instigating factors for cardiovascular disease for many types of cancers that's not Mm -hmm. any kind of drastic claim you can find that in any pathology textbook prolonged inflammatory changes in tissues can activate certain genes that influence cellular replication it's a it's a pretty serious thing Mm -hmm. okay so if you're not keeping that chronic inflammatory load in check then you put yourself at greater risk of many diseases and with a lack of the long chain omega-3 fatty acids it, that does put you into that state. So, so there you go. That's number one. I also want to add to that because I love, I love, as I'm sitting there and going, we have these conversations all the time because mm-hmm. you know that we, both Dale and I, I'm saying you know, like everybody on this podcast obviously knows so like, our conversations that we have weekly. But no, we always talk about omega-3s because my yeah. research was around that as well. And But something else is that we have a very high um, intake of omega-6s. So even yes, yesterday yes, when I was at... I was at a pub and um, they they served us some bread, beautiful bread. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were like, there's some rapeseed oil. And I was like, can I have olive. some olive oil, please? And they were like, no, no, we only have rapeseed oil. I'm not going to name the pub because it's a very, very prestigious, well-known pub. However, I was, a, and you know, the person I was opposite was like, what's wrong with rapeseed oil? And I'm like, oh God, it's like nutritionist coming out of me. And I was like, well, it's very inflammatory. It's very high in omega-6. I was, let me say, having fatty fish at the time. So I was also increasing my omega-3 load. But it's just these things that are, if many people that don't know, our diet is oversaturated in omega-6. And they have the same enzyme of the conversion that works with omega-6 to omega-3. So those shorter chain omega-3 fatty acids that you were just talking about that even if we eat in abundance mm-hmm. we're going to struggle to still gain the EPA because there'll be competition on the enzymes exactly we also then have as well as that really low you know that low conversion we also have a really high diet in omega-6 i think it's now something like 18 to 1 which is Try the, 23 yeah well yeah i thought that and then i listened to something yesterday and it said now Maybe 18 to 1 better. so i'm like have Maybe we gone back have we gone back but i mean yeah. we're still really out of range for what we're meant to be so yeah. i completely agree and again a lot of plant-based foods can be very high in omega-6 and a lot of things that people are cooking in such as rapeseed oil and sunflower oil um they're all very 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 inflammatory which i don't think yeah, many it's people all, know about that no because it's, all to, it's all to do with the end products so you know, fatty acids like they—they they are the biochemical, the, the metabolic building blocks for several things in the body. Yeah. Some of these, some of these metabolic end products are structural. So, mm-hmm. um, the omega three fatty acid DHA, for example, that's a key structural component within the myelin sheath, within cell membranes, within the rods and the cones of the eyes, mm-hmm. and then EPA, <clears throat> one of the main. Well, okay, so, so we've got the structural the structural um, end products, but then we've also got communication end products. So when fatty acids are metabolized, they get turned into communication compounds, the main ones being the prostaglandins. Now, prostaglandins, these are things that they, they can influence some elements of smooth muscle contraction, they can influence some elements of pain signaling, but the main thing that they interact with is the inflammatory response. You've got three prostaglandins, series one, series two, series three. Series 1 is mildly anti-inflammatory. Series 3 is aggressively anti-inflammatory, but then you've got series 2 in the middle. That one is aggressively pro-inflammatory. The the precursor to the series 2 prostaglandin, the um the the highly inflammatory prostaglandin is something called arachidonic acid. Now with the omega-6 fatty acids, omega-6 we do need, they are an essential fatty acid, but we only need a very, very small, very, very finite amount of them. And um, the, the, the pathway that actually deals with that small amount that we need every day is very rapidly saturated. As soon as that metabolic pathway is saturated, any additional omega-6 that's coming in will get shuttled down a different pathway and get converted into arachidonic acid. The arachidonic acid will then feed into that PGE2 pathway and you'll get that increased expression of the series 2 prostaglandin. So two two ways that we can actually completely turn this picture around. The first is exactly what you just said there, Sarah, is like 
bringing the intake of omega-6 down. The less mm. omega-6, the less of this AA is going to be formed from it, from any kind of excess. And then if you couple that with an increase of the long-chain EPA and DHA, now DHA predominantly, um, predominantly a structural thing, but some DHA will feed into the Series 1 prostaglandin pathway, so that's gentle anti-inflammatory, but also... DHA does uh, give rise to something called a delta resolving, which is an anti-inflammatory compound as well. But then the EPA, that feeds right into that PGE3 pathway, that pathway that gives rise to that powerfully anti-inflammatory series 3 prostaglandin. So that the simple act of just cutting out the cheap omega-6-derived oils, so that's sunflower oil, corn oil, soybean oil, rapeseed oil, all of that kind of stuff, just using a good quality olive oil, maybe a little bit of coconut oil for high temperature stuff, yeah. but don't think that that's like the answer to everything as well. I mean, like, you know, you look maybe on Instagram, that's another that's, myth. That's, that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's a whole a whole other thing. So just reducing those oils, then increasing your intake of the long chain EPA and DHA by eating more oily fish or taking the right kind of supplements can massively turn around that inflammatory picture and that means that your risk of some of these degenerative lifestyle related conditions can be influenced by that simple behavior change. Mm -hmm. Fantastic, fantastic and can I ask you about, I know that we're near the end but can I ask you about your last myth? My last myth. Oh, crikey. Um, I've got so far down a rabbit hole, I've forgotten. And then we've gone into omega-3s. Oh. So it's always our problem, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> that's it. We, just, we, 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 we need an omega-3 ban on one of them and then we see do, what happens. We do, don't we? I feel like yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that's going to happen. Um, <laughs> the, the other myth. The other myth. Oh, Certainly you see you're coming across quite a lot. Yeah. Oh, blimey. That's really difficult. That's really Because there, there really are so many. There really, really are so many. It's, it's, it's frightening. There it's is. There is. Yeah. I mean, okay. So, so, so here's here's the other one. This this is the big one, and you, you'll be agreeing with this one as well. Mm-hmm. It's that saturated fat causes heart disease. As you as I as you said that, I've just seen Azima Holtra sent me something called saturated fat. <laughs> <laughs> He's a friend of ours, but a cardiovascular um, doctor who um, speaks a lot about this. Dale, I'll let you take the lead. Well, yeah, the weird thing is, I mean, because there was this whole lipid hypothesis around um, cardiovascular disease and the the idea was was put across by um, a guy called Ansel Keys, that was an Amer- American physiologist that had a, a real strong interest in nutrition. Mm-hmm. And he had the hypothesis that dietary saturated fats were the causative factor in cardiovascular disease and people with high cholesterol and high fat intakes uh, were more at risk so he, he set about designing a study that was originally the 23 countries study mm-hmm. um no the 22 countries study i'm sorry yeah 22 countries study that as the name suggests was a study of the um dietary patterns of 22 countries that was then um measured against their incidence of cardiovascular disease now, already, we need to point out observational studies are always limited. You know, correlation doesn't indicate causation. Mm-hmm. You know, so we, there's yes. always going to be weaknesses in that in that kind of data set. Anyway, it sets the stage for further research, but mm-hmm. you can't draw conclusions from that on its own. <clears throat> but Keyes was very heavily funded by um, industry and by the US government. And there was a lot of pressure for him to prove his... Um, his hypothesis correct and when the data was published i mean this was one of the most perfect examples of you know publication bias and data bias you've ever seen mm-hmm. it was the seven country study yeah because it was the data set from the from the seven countries that supported the hypothesis even the cochrane collaboration the cochrane collaboration are like the arch nemesis to anything nutrition yeah. If you're talking about nutrition, then the Cochrane collaboration, they're coming for you. They hate you. But even they, even they took the data and said, look, there's, there's, there's the original data set from all 22 countries. They were like, there is no correlation whatsoever. And weirdly, it's, it's bizarre because Asim covered this in the Piopi diet, didn't he? That yes. Later on in his career... Ansel Keys wanted to undo the damage that he did. He realised that, that, you know, that, that, that correlation wasn't there, but he couldn't get a single paper published. Yeah. that actually went against it because obviously so much of the the medical establishment took took on board this this actual link but the the, the unfortunate thing is when 
at the time when Key's work was published and he was on the cover of Time magazine and, you know, he, he really was getting a lot of attention, this started to shape public health policy. Mm-hmm. And then the message was cut out saturated fat. Yeah. And instead go for the heart-healthy vegetable oils or, as you and I know them, the omega-6-rich oils. What did we just talk about? Mm-hmm. So that was one. And then build your diet around healthy starchy carbohydrates these low fat starchy foods now i eat carbs carbs are great they're awesome but the amount that you eat and if you're kind of like building your diet purely around starches and carbohydrates basically you're going to be in a diet that is constantly pushing your blood sugar up Mm -hmm. now when blood sugar rises the the if if you normally your blood sugar is within a healthy range if you get a sudden rise your body just responds by releasing insulin insulin binds to an insulin receptor on a cell it opens a little doorway called a glucose transporter the glucose goes in the cells use that glucose to make atp blood sugar goes back within a healthy range all is good in the world mm-hmm. but if you're following a diet that's constantly pushing blood sugar up and up and up and up and up after a while cells have got a cutoff point cells can be very very um at high risk of something called glucotoxicity. If there's too much glucose within a cell at any one time, it can actually start to damage genetic material and cause a lot of damage within the cell. So the cell has a cutoff point. It will only take in so much. At that point, the signal from insulin can't really do anything. Okay, so if blood sugar's still high, because blood sugar that's too high or too low are both, you know, they're both life-threatening states, there's lots of homeostatic mechanisms to deal with those issues so if at that point the insulin has told the cells to take up glucose but all of the cells have got to that state where they're full and blood glucose is still high because you still you keep caning all of these carbohydrates then the next thing that happens is that that excess sugar gets sent to the liver and is converted into a very effective storage medium we've got two ways of storing energy the first is um something called glycogen which is just you know, it's 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 like a, a slightly more complex version of glucose that gets stored in the in the liver and the skeletal muscle, mm-hmm. and then after that, any additional glucose gets converted into something called triacylglycerol, otherwise known as triglycerides, which then gets stored in the adipose tissue. And this is this is hardwired into our genetics, by the way, because obviously when we were kind of living on the the Serengeti or whatever, we would have times of feast or famine. During times of feast, we needed effective ways to be able to store that energy, so that during times of famine, we can tap into it and then utilize that at times when food was scarce. But food, you know. We we never get into the into the famine stage anymore. So this mm. this this response is hardwired into our DNA. Blood sugar goes up, gets that that excess gets converted into triacylglycerol. A couple of things start to happen. Firstly, um, is obviously our the volume of our adipose tissue goes up, so we put Which on is weight. Our fat partic- tissue, just exactly. in case anyone doesn't know what that is. Yeah, particularly around the around um, the, the tummy band, particularly, mm-hmm. um, but the triglycerides have to get transported to the adipose tissue via the cardiovascular system. So your blood fats go up. That can send send up LDL cholesterol, particularly, I mean, that's always labelled bad. I mean, there's only one cholesterol. Yeah. The two, the LDL and the HDL, they're, they're the carriers. They're like two different bus routes. One bus route takes it from the liver out into the peripheries. The other takes it from the peripheries back to the liver for breakdown. But there's a particular type of LDL cholesterol called small dense LDL that's very, very atherogenic that can actually easily embed within the walls of the the cardiovascular system. But I'll come to that in a minute. These triglycerides that are freely circulating in our cardiovascular system are very susceptible to oxidation. When they oxidize, they can cause inflammatory damage within the vessel wall. And it's the inflammatory damage that kickstarts the whole thing. It's got absolutely nothing to do with the dietary fats necessarily. I mean, they can mm. play a part, particularly the omega-6 element. As we'll see, the inflammatory damage to the endothelium then instigates an immune response. And it, it instigates the same response that any tissue damage would. So you start to get fibrin and all these other things laid down. And there's like a little mesh that starts to trap things that are moving through the lumen of the vessel. One, If that happens to be small dense LDL, then it can burrow its way into the wall of the vessel very, very easily because of its size. You know, the other end of the, the spectrum is like the, the sort of light, fluffy LDL that's such a huge particle, even if there was a massive gaping hole in the vessel, it still wouldn't be able to embed itself within the actual vessel wall. Mm. Um, 
once that embeds itself in the vessel wall, you get the like white blood cells rush to the area and start to engulf it, and that causes like the formation of something called a foam cell, and that turns into an atherosclerotic plaque. Say that one backwards, and I'll give you a fiver. Um, and you know that's 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 the whole kind of sequence of events. The the the, the unfortunate thing is that advice to cut out saturated fat, move over to the heart healthy vegetable oils, and healthy starchy carbohydrates was the biggest public health cock up of all time although probably lockdown is going to beat that but you know that's a discussion yeah. for another day um, true. yeah <laughs> um, because what happened is it created this perfect metabolic environment for cardiovascular disease to actually go up mm. you've got pro-inflammatory oils in there you've got huge amounts of starch which are you know causing those blood sugar changes and you know that that changes in those changes in blood lipid profiles and all those kind of things because if you look at, at that time in history, people weren't really dropping dead of heart attacks in the same way as they are no. in this day and age. Yeah. You know, you, we're, we're talking, it was just, I think it was just after World War II that mm-hmm. it really started to happen. And then, and then, you know, get to fast forward to the late 70s. And that's when these public health messages really started coming out in, into the into the public arena. If you look at the and you can use World Health Organization data. I mean, well, yeah. <laughs> we 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 can always question that now as well after everything that's happened. But you can look at the data that's been recorded, and you can plot this perfect curve of like as more and more um, public health messages surrounding dropping saturated fat and moving over to um, the heart healthy vegetable oils and the mm. and and the starchy carbohydrates went up. Incidence of cardiovascular disease went up as well. Yeah, and they're still one of the leading causes of and death. it's still going worldwide. up yeah but then obviously add into the mix um you know stress and yeah. you know nutritional deficiencies and stuff like that and it's the perfect storm it is i mean that was i mean anyone that's not studying nutrition that was a that was a one-stop whistle tour and uh on nutrition for you right there um, yeah sorry I was, I, unfortunately <laughs> i can amazing. i can't talk the ass off a cow like when i get started on this so i do apologize if um if that was a bit Right. No, I mean you can stop, rewind and re listen and you'll soon yeah. enough you'll soon enough understand that saturated fat isn't as bad as, as people think it is. But it's it's the same thing with eggs, isn't it? And everything else that came yeah. up and all of these foods that were fear mongered into not eating. Yeah, let, which were let, good let, healthy foods. Yeah, I'll give you a little take home, ladies and gents. The one thing that you don't want is cholesterol levels that are too low so you know you want a good healthy cholesterol level because if you're quite a fan of having estrogen or testosterone in your body then you don't want low cholesterol because that's what those hormones are made out of if your cholesterol gets too low if you go on these like super super low fat diets and avoid these really good healthy fat sources you, you can get drops in testosterone or drops in your estrogen and you don't want that you don't want that and also it's just realizing how and I think when you study nutrition, you realise just how complex it is. And the more you know, oh, the, yes. the little you feel like you know, um, the more the more you learn. However, yeah. I feel like, yeah, I, there are so many fatty diets out there, especially the low-fat one or low-calorie as well, which I hate to mm. hear. Um, which... oh, yeah, can, I, can I add one more myth? <laughs> okay, quick. You've got a couple of minutes. Okay, okay. Well, <laughs> one more th- okay, so, so basically that, that whole thing of um, eat less, move more absolute twaddle i mean the whole notion of that is ridiculous it's like if i want to do a 50 mile journey in my car and i put 10 miles worth of fuel in it i'm not gonna be sitting at the side of the road scratching my head thinking why the hell have i broken down why is this not working out for me if i was at the top of a hill i might be able to coast down for a little while but it's the same idea with our body you need to fuel the body correctly and it like it is substrate is king is what i say so what the what you're actually fueling the body rather than really random arbitrary numerical values Mm. is what matters i completely agree with you and that leads me really nicely onto (laughs) what does be well mean to you dale what does be well mean to me i think ultimately you you have to kind of set your own definition of that Mm-hmm. Because I, I think I think probably the worst thing you could do is let other external variables determine what that means to you, and I think that's a big problem in this day and age with the social media era. Mm-hmm. We're all kind of looking at these things that, that are, and kind of thinking this is what we should be living up to, this is what we should be doing, and there's almost like a it's almost like health guilt, mm-hmm. you know. Where you need, I see that in so many people. I think I think ultimately just being able to take a look, a realistic look at your own life determine what your own goals are and figure out how to get there 
yourself look by all means use the right you know the right people to guide you but never let you know anything external determine what your health journey should be it's a very very personal thing it's a very very um personal process and you've got to get the right kind of guidance but never be never be driven by you know these kind of junk values that surround us all the time Completely agree with everything of that sentence. A hundred percent. Nutrition is completely individual, and I think that is your own health journey. And hopefully, yeah. from listening to people speak on these podcasts and experts, you know what they're talking about, that can hopefully help you guide your own journey into mm. into your nutrition, which is really important. And so, for everyone who's listening, where where can they find you there on social media? Right. So, um most active really on instagram so it's just at the medicinal chef mm-hmm. uh facebook medicinal chef as well and then my website is dalepinnock.com fantastic well dale thank you so much for coming on to live well be well and hopefully i'll be able to see you soon Hope, yeah <laughs> Christ, <laughs> yeah eventually yeah i mean whenever this goes out well it's um we'll get there We'll get there. We'll, we'll get, get there. there. But all I, all I keep saying to people is like, can you imagine the party when this is all over? <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna buy a case of milk thistle now, so I'm ready. So you're ready. Just yeah. You'll start your preparation <laughs> in advance. I yeah. like that. Yeah. Only a nutritionist would leave it on that note. Completely. <laughs> oh, have a lovely day. You Thanks, too, Dale. Thank you all so much for listening to Live Well, Be Well. I hope you enjoyed that episode. And if you did, please do subscribe to this series of Live Well, Be Well, which will keep you up to date on the weekly episodes which are coming out. If you haven't yet subscribed to the Great British Vegetable ebook, please do online via my website, sarahannmacklin.com. It's 74 pages packed full of shopping lists, low-cost food, all of the meals are under £2 and up to 30 recipes to keep you and your nutrition up to speed and up to track, gaining your five a day. And until next time, I hope you all live well and be well. Before you go, I have something new to tell you about. There's brand new bonus content waiting for you with every new guest I speak to. These are exclusively for my inner circle of Apple subscribers. To listen now, head to the Live Well, Be Well show page on Apple Podcasts, where you can activate your free trial and you can enjoy the podcast without adverts.